0: If you haven't met me yet, some of you haven't because I said there were unfamiliar faces. I'm part of the four guys leading the truth seekers thing tonight. We've been doing a study in Galatians, and that's what we're going to continue on with tonight. Um, we've had some really, really stellar knockout lessons so far. Mine is probably going to be somewhat brief in comparison. At least I hope it is. Uh, whenever I, I, I try to plan short because I can be a bit long-winded. Um, and uh, just a bit of a forewarning, I might not be asking as many questions as normal in the class. I want to keep things moving along at a pretty good pace. I've noticed that everyone's favorite activity seems to be reading instead of answering questions. So I have plenty of opportunities for people to crack open their Bible and, and read a passage if they want to. They're all very brief, so no need to feel like you have to read forever. Um, and we're going to continue our study in the book of Galatians. So if would everyone please open their Bible to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be starting tonight. What's so. up? a bit of a recap. Where are we right now in Galatians chapter 3? What's going on? This book was written to the church in Galatia uh, by the Apostle Paul. We've established lots of things about his apostleship in the previous classes. We've talked about his motive for writing this um, letter. Jordan had a great lesson on love and, and Paul's motives for that last week. Today we're going to be getting into some more of the nitty gritty and a lot of more of like the main points of why he's writing this, sort of the thesis behind Paul's motives, some big picture ideas. So um, before we get started, a little bit more, I want to discuss Paul a bit just so we can sort of have some context. Paul was a Roman citizen in the time of Rome. He was a Jewish scholar of the finest nature before he became a Christian, he has vast scriptural knowledge, and he's also educated. His writings in these letters are very, very, uh, well, I already said educated, but that's really what they are. They're well-worded, they're logical, they're filled with reasoning, and so we're going to be looking at a lot of the ways he does that tonight in this book. Now... On my chapter 3, and in my Bible, and I'm guessing in most of your Bibles too, I have these sort of uh, headlines for different groups of verses. Um, Like earlier on in Galatians, I have a chunk that's called No Other Gospel. I think that's a pretty good summary of that. Paul called by God, another good summary. Chapter 3, we're going to be, it starts with By Faith or By Works of Law. That's what I have italicized here. Of course, this this heading isn't scriptural, but it's a pretty good summary of what's discussed here. However, I want to get a couple of things out of the way real quick first. So, today when we hear this sort of uh, combination of works versus faith, what's the first thing that comes to mind? What do you think of initially? Faith versus works. What sort of pops into your head? There's no wrong answer. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. I, I like that one. Faith without works is dead. That's an important point of contention for Christianity today. If you don't act on something, there's no reason for you to really or believe in it, because actions sort of make a person. Great point. Any other points? In the room, faith versus works. Not works alone. Not works alone. Yes, not works alone, um, faith as well. So I feel like uh, I'm going to take these two answers and sort of synthesize them into one idea. We get a lot of ideas today, and um, I know fundamentalist Christianity, New Testament Christians love to bring up the balance between faith and works. Like if you have faith over here and works over here, we want to strive to be in the middle where our faith is driving us to do our works. Our works are an outward showing of an inward faith. I love that. I think that's a great idea, but that's not what Galatians chapter 3 is about. That's not what this by faith or by works of the law passage is really talking about here. There's a different issue that we don't necessarily have to face today. In fact, I would argue that we sort of face a polar opposite issue. Uh, I'll I'll sort of get into that later. But that's not what the study is really going to be about, and that's not what the chapter itself is about. There are really sort of three big things to glean from Galatians chapter 3. We have to find out what Paul is saying here because that's, that's important. We have to find out how what Paul is saying is relevant to us, how it applies, and then we need to get down to the nitty-gritty point of why it all matters. So that's what we're going to study tonight, three sort of big bullet points, the what, the how, and the point, which doesn't really roll off the tongue like I thought it would, but uh, it's it's the truth. So if we're in Galatians chapter 3, could I get some brave soul to read the first two verses of Galatians chapter
1: 3? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive by the Spirit? Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or believing what you heard? Thank you very much. Also, another point, if you have
0: anything that strikes you that you want to, to say out loud, make a great point about, I'm going to keep scanning the room so that no one's hand sort of goes down while I keep talking and they don't get to say it, please feel free to... To let, it, to let it out to enrich the conversation because there's a lot of points you can jump off of here. So thank you, Sean, for reading that. Here's a, a big sort of a knockout point right here at the start of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. He just he comes right out swinging, calling them foolish. Pretty pretty brazen of Paul, especially when calling people a fool is pretty taboo in biblical times. In fact, I still think we probably shouldn't do it nowadays because it's, it's insulting. It's insulting and it's demeaning to that person. But Paul comes out and says it. Oh, foolish Galatians, calling them Call them foolish. So I want to step back to Jordan's lessons for a second and, and talk about why Paul would do this. This isn't coming from an attitude of contention or um, sort of condescension. This is an expression of love. Paul's not calling them foolish to make himself better or necessarily to make them feel bad. He's doing it to wake them up because they are being foolish as we're about to study in this chapter. They're doing something really, really wrong. And after he comes out with this sort of knockout question, he brings up a, re- or a knockout point. He brings up a rhetorical question. He asks... Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now I'm not gonna pop this question up to you guys because Paul's gonna answer it in a second, but it's not it's not a big question. The Galatians weren't supposed to be like, hmm, that's a that's a good point, I'm not really sure. So with that in mind, could someone read verses three through six for me? Are you so
2: having begun in the spirit are you now being made perfect by the flesh have you suffered so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith just as abraham believed god and it was accounted to him for righteousness
0: thank you very much so here's some other big points i also love how he he comes out swinging again. are you so foolish? I can just see Paul sort of writing this letter and being like, while he's writing every note, because he's so mad at these people for being foolish. So the question he brings up here is the answer to his previous question. He's sort of asking a few, but answering his questions in between them. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected by the flesh? He's asking himself, your faith started you on this path, so now you're going back to the law, because that's going to fix it? Your, your faith? is the core of your belief system, and now you're going to rely back on the law. We'll get into why the law is so big later, but he's sort of bringing it up over and over again. They, he talks about suffering in vain. It's, it's a lot of big ideas being thrown <coughs> around right here. By doing what they're doing, the Christians at Galatia are basically making all their effort for naught. They've taken, like, one step forward and then two steps back, and they're in a, a pretty bad place because of it, because of these works of the flesh, these works of the law. Verse 6 Is sort of a big starting point about what we're about to get into here, the sort of heart of the message. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, um, this is is a big idea we're about to get to. Abraham's faith, his belief in God, and then the righteousness that follows afterwards. So, continuing on, I need someone to read verses 7 through 9.
3: Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all nations, and you, all the nations, shall be blessed. So then those who are faithful, who are of faith,
0: are blessed. In believing Abraham. Thank you. So, now we've finally gotten to the what, pretty quick. Um, this is, we're not studying too many verses tonight. This is the what. This is the big idea that resonates very very strongly in this chapter. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Can anyone tell me why this would be a big deal to say to the people of Galatia, why saying those of faith are the sons of Abraham would would be impactful? Any ideas? Because
3: that
0: was the point of identity for the Jews. Absolutely. That was the point of identity for the Jews. The Jews were the descendants of Abraham, and being the descendants of Abraham meant they got access to the promise of Abraham. It was their natural, cultural biological identity. It was basically the nail that their whole identity hung on. It was being children of Abraham. And what Paul writes right here in one verse, he completely destroys their entire identity. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not not the people who are born biologically descendants of Abraham. Not the people in your tribes. Not your scribes or Pharisees or your rabbis just because of what they were born into. The people who are the sons of Abraham are those who have faith, those of faith, those who live by faith in righteousness. Important points here. Um, And he's not just pulling this out of his hat either. He's not pulling this out of thin air. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He throws it all the way back to before there was any sort of Jewish identity, before there was any kind of law. He, He throws it back to the Abrahamic promise. Um this promise being that all nations will be blessed, and the implication being through Jesus. There was a gospel all the way back then, crazy enough, and it was it was within the promise of Abraham. So that's sort of what Paul's is going, throwing out right here. And I don't want to dip too far into the next lesson because um, next week on Truth Seekers, we'll be studying lots of uh, lots of stuff about Abraham and his faith and his promise with God. So that's not what I'm really going to dip into too much, but that's how he's setting this up right here. So that that is the what? The big... Take away what he's telling them is that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And that entails all that comes with that. The blessings um, and, and the promises made to Abraham. So, we have the what, but I'm sort of left with this question of how. So, okay, Paul, you know, I'll follow you this far. Us who are of faith, we're now the sons of Abraham. We now have access to all those blessings, but, but how? How, how, is, how has that changed? Why do we not have to follow the law anymore, Paul? And that's exactly what he's about to bring up in this next section right here. Uh, My Bible has an annotation that says, The righteous shall live by faith. I think that's a pretty okay annotation for this section. But what it really has to do with is the change from the old law to the new law and what that means for the Galatians. So, could someone please... uh, oh, another point I have to write down. It's interesting what Paul is about to do here is basically what we're doing right now. We're studying God's word in order to make applications about it. We're reading straight from his scriptures. We're discussing it. Or really I'm sort of speaking about it, sorry. But what Paul is about to do is the exact same thing. In these next verses, he's going to quote scripture. He's going to reason with it. And he's going to show you how this plan that God has had for, um, for faith to be the the foundation of our relationship with him, has existed all this time, all the way through the law, before the law, and now it has come to fruition after the law. So with that in mind, could someone please read verse 10 of chapter
2: 3? For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them.
0: Thank you, thank you. Paul is referring to Deuteronomy Twenty-seven, twenty-six. In that verse, right there, it's it's pretty much verbatim what it says. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, "Amen." If you want to look there, you don't have to. But uh, all the all the verses beforehand in this Deuteronomy chapter are lots of reasons for people to be cursed. Lots of really sort of raunchy, bad things you should never do. And it's it's cursed be someone who does this. Cursed be someone who does that. The real caveat, though, is what he's quoting. Cursed be anyone who does not conform. To the words of this law by doing them. Okay, here's sort of a a big point right here. The the law is important. You want to follow the law, obviously, but um, how many people can we think of who have flawlessly followed the law? That's right, Douglas, only one person, and that's Jesus Christ. So, in a way, all people had fallen under this curse. I really like what Paul says here. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because no one has ever been able to follow it 100% to a T. They've fallen under the curse of the law, and and God has explicitly stated, if you break the law, you're cursed. And it's written right here. So that that sounds really macabre and morbid, but we're about to get to to the good part of it. I need someone now to read verses 11 through 12.
2: But then no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. For the man who does them shall live by them.
0: Thank you. Big point here as well. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So here's sort of the big fall through of the law or the Old Testament, as we, as we might like to call it. They can't justify people before God because it is a work of the flesh. It is not, it is not of faith. Now, I'm not going to say that there weren't always a remnant of Jews who faithfully followed the law had faith in god and did the law but it doesn't matter how faithfully they followed the law they were still under that curse they didn't live a perfect life as they followed it Uh, they tried their best of course and i think that if you want to study the old testament it's very clear um, where they are right now but what's being written here is that the law can't it can't save us it can't do that Um, the old testament was not designed to save us from our sins because the only way to live righteously is in faith. The law is not faith; it's a work. It's a lot of logic going on here. Uh, Paul is, is trying to be very reasonable. He's making points. He's connecting points. It's, it's pretty easy to follow. But now we're going to continue on to um, verses 13 through 14. This is where things get really crazy. Uh, can someone read that for me? Christ redeemed
2: us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole." He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus,
0: so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Thank you very much. All right, we're going, to, we're going to spend a bit of time on this, but this is basically the how. Now, when I read through this studying for truth seekers, I noticed that I had never actually sort of looked up this whole cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree verse. I never really thought about that before. So I went over to read it, and it's, it's a very interesting verse, in my opinion. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, because I'm going to have to read it out loud. Um, but it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defy your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I sort of wondered to myself while I read that, why, why is a, a hanged man cursed before god i don't think there's really any sort of answer i can come up with that i mean it's sort of gross to leave a dead body hanging up on a tree very irreverent towards life in general that, that might have something to do with it but the real reason why is never explained god said so that is his will you know that's something we sort of have to to just agree with here but it makes me wonder if this this verse this commandment about hanging on a tree didn't happen for some greater purpose, a greater purpose that we're reading about right now, a connection we can make all the way back to the old law, um, and that is that Christ became a curse for us on that tree. Uh, It's very interesting language here. Cursed be a man who's hung on a tree. Christ hung on a tree. He became a curse for us. It's It's a logical process Paul is following, but it's worded sort of differently. Hearing Christ and curse in the same sort of connotation sort of might make you be like, hmm, Christ? Cursed, you know, we, we, we talk about how Christ was sinless. And I think I have a good verse that'll help us sort of reason with that. Uh, could someone turn to 1 Peter chapter 2? 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'd like you to read verses 21 through 24.
3: For this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed.
0: Thank you, Josh. The, The big point of all of that is verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Um... I don't think I can draw a direct language correlation between curse and bearing our sins, but I think that we can find a very strikingly similar idea in, this, in these two different passages. When Christ died, he bore our sins on the cross. When Christ died, he became a curse on the cross, a curse from God, a curse by God. He bore our sins. He was a curse. On the cross, the big question is why. What, what did that accomplish um, how, how is this the how? And to answer that, I'm going to turn over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Um, this is another verse I really like. <clears throat> and this is, these are the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Quick question, does anyone have uh, a New King James version on them right now? Could you read the same verse that I just read? 5.17?
3: Do not
0: think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Thank you very much. I'm a much bigger fan of that translation that says I did not come to destroy the law. Because let's think about it for a second. Jesus did come to abolish the law in a traditional sense of the word. He didn't destroy it. We still have it. We still need it. It's right here. But it no longer applies to us. We're no longer under it. It has been abolished as a law. It is now for our, for our, our gain, our study, our knowledge, our understanding of God. Um, But Jesus, he did come to abolish it. That's what he did on the cross. When he took our sins, when he took the curse of the old law onto the cross and died as a sacrifice for all of us, he eliminated the old law and our sins right there. Of course, there's lots of things we have to do to, to get to a point where we can accept that, but that's sort of the heart of this message. Christ became a curse for us on the cross. He bore our sins and now we're free. We experience a freedom in Christ both from our sins and from the old law. Now, we're going to continue on here for a second but I think that this is is a big point because by doing this by dying on the cross, by becoming a curse taking our sins into his body on the cross dying for us Christ has abolished the old covenant so that we might receive the promise of Abraham. How do we get the blessings of Abraham through faith? It is through the death of Jesus Christ. It is through his death on the cross. It is through the abolishment of the old law as law. Um, I'm sort of I, I, I trying to kind of try to tread lightly around that word because that is a word that is directly used in the scriptures, but I think, I think that that's not probably the most eloquent word. Destroy in the New King James Version um, carries a connotation that really delivers the message that you'll find if you study it. This, this idea is really central. It's what Paul is telling to these people. He's saying, okay, those are faith. They received the blessing of Abraham because you're no longer under the law. Christ died for the law and abolished it. That's how. You don't need the law anymore. You can go to Jesus through faith. Now, this whole through faith thing might be raising some eyebrows because a lot of people are all like, okay, well, um, I heard faith without works is dead earlier, which I still really like, and I'm going to sort of take a, a Joshism because I was going over this lesson with Josh the other night, and Josh made this point, and I said, ooh, I really like that. I'm, I'm going to use that. Okay, so I'm going to credit him for this. But Josh made a point that said these this people, this culture, they lived in a time where people did not do nothing. These weren't the people who did nothing. And this isn't like oh they didn't do nothing kind of thing. Like as in they, they weren't a people who actively tried to be lazy and not engage in something. Actions to these people were very important. Um, big verse to think about in this regard. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's in the Bible there. It's in the Bible in the Old Testament. And to the Jewish culture of the time, that is a very large societal norm. You want to think about the people who did nothing in the first century? Those people were probably lame or elderly, or sick. Those were the people who did nothing. Everyone else worked. And especially when it came to religion and faith, the actions that people took were very key to them at that time in their religion. Um, Be it paganism, their sacrifices, um, their chants, or the law, if you want to think about it that way. Read the books of Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers. You will find thing after thing after thing to do and not do. That's just sort of how it was. That's where we get passages, man does not work, don't let him eat. You weren't supposed to be lazy back then. These people did not have a problem with just accepting Jesus as their personal Savior and not doing anything about it, because they did things at this time. Their problem was a lack of faith in God. So you might be wondering, how does this all lead to a lack of faith? Why is he drilling faith home so hard to these people when they're performing the old law? They're performing God's old commandments. I think that that can sort of be a tough hurdle to jump over, because at this point, Paul is hammering home faith, but these people are still doing things that God had at one point commanded them to do. And that's where we run down to the whole point of this letter, the whole point of everything. Think back to the teachings of the Judaizers. What does it all boil down to? What are they they trying to introduce into Christianity? What is it?
1: Circumcision. Yes. Okay. Bigger picture than that. You
3: have to do all the
0: Law and yep, it's incorporating the law into Christianity. Now, again, how does this show a lack of faith? I think there are some easy answers here, but we're going to keep we're going to keep going for a second on this whole concept of the law. The law was not just um, a law to the Jews; it wasn't just a code of things to do. It was basically their entire culture, minus the Hellenism that had sort of come in at that point. But their entire national identity. Their entire culture, the way that their political system was laid out, the way they autonomized themselves, it was the law. It was what God had given them um, back at the start. It's what the prophets had revealed to them. It it was the law and that's all they knew and that's that's all they wanted to do really at that point. I kind of feel like the Jews had had gotten in a rut, an appropriate rut while it was there, but at this point they were having a really hard time climbing out. And here's here's what it all boils down to, why this is a lack of faith. In the end, the Judaizers and the Christians at Galatia, they cared more about the law than they cared about God. They believed more in the law than they believed in God. They did not have enough faith to follow what God told them to do. Just like it's written in verse 2 of Galatians when he asks them, or Galatians chapter 3, when he asks them you know, that, that big rhetorical question. They know the answer. He knows the answer. Their, their works did not get them the Holy Spirit. Their works did not save them. It, it was their faith, and that faith leading them to godly sorrow, repentance, and then salvation through Jesus. So, Paul's message and point to the church here is clear. What you're doing, Church of Galatia, is no longer what God wants you to do. What these Judaizers are teaching you is no longer what God wants. It was what God wanted. There was a time and a place where this was very appropriate, but now it's not. The old law has been abolished. Christ died and saved us so that we can inherit Abraham's promise through faith. But The faith problem here was that they weren't willing to listen to that. To them, their law, their culture, was more important than what God wanted then. And they used this sort of excuse. They'd use the old law. They'd say, hey, look, it is written. We have to do this right here. This is what God wants. The real thing is that was what God had wanted. What God wants now is what he wants from all of us, and that is faith. And that faith leads us to the actions that we've been told to do. Obviously, we could get into Christianity and and what we have to do there. But tonight is more about what we have to do first. And what we have to do first is believe in God. The issue here is an issue in priority. What was more important? Was following the law more important? Was doing what the people around you were doing more important? Was doing what you had always done more important? Or was actively serving to please God the main goal in your life? If actively serving to please God was, then this whole issue wouldn't be a problem. Like Paul said earlier in the chapter, he was, he was always on the lookout for people who were coming in with false doctrines. That's because Paul wanted to please God, because Paul knew that what he had from God was true. It's what God wants right now, and anything else, anything different at all, was not what God wanted. And this, this might sound incredibly extreme, this might sound big, but this is the whole reason this letter was written, that this chapter was written to these people, was because they were pleasing themselves by following the law, and not pleasing God. So that's what it boils down to here. The the takeaway is, what are we going to do? Are we going to follow the conventions that are set before us? Are we going to sort of blindly listen to what people tell us, uh, nod our heads, and, and go along with the crowd? Or are we going to form a personal relationship with God, find out what he wants for us, and please him the way he wants us to do it? And that's sort of my takeaway. Any comments? Any questions before we close?
2: I'll say this, I think what they were doing for the most part, you're talking about them holding on to a lot of aspects of the old law Um, and you were saying that was good when it was appropriate, and that it was appropriate for a time, and Jesus had a very similar run in, which I think we may have even talked about a few weeks ago, where he had people come up to him and they were saying all these things, or he was talking about these great things they were doing under the old law, but he said they should have done this without forgetting what? What? God. Okay, God, what would he specifically say there? You might remember? Let me find the passage and then we'll all go over there. Matthew 23, 23. that they should have done all these smaller things and but they have neglected the weightier matters of the law. justice, mercy, mercy, and faith. these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So with those things in mind, I think what we're seeing here is a difference between the reason for the law and if I can call it the symptoms of the law, which were all the small things that they did. And so even then the reason for the law is the same reason for Christ. And that is to establish um, eternal justice, Have eternal mercy and to embolden our faith. That is the purpose of the old law and the new law. And the symptoms of the old law were all these small signs that point them towards that. And now they're trying to hold on to all these small signs to point them towards justice and mercy and faith. When now we have the greatest sign to point us towards justice and mercy and faith. And so really what they're doing, you're right. It's a lack of faith because they don't respect Jesus and the sign that he is to our eternal mercy and our eternal justice and instead they're trying to look back to all of these small things all of these little bitty signs along the way for the past couple of thousand years when they've been handed the greatest sign they could have had and then they have kind of ignored it entirely trying to turn back to the small things and so yeah i think you're exactly right in that. that's the point of that entire thing is that they keep holding on to things that were appropriate for Bible, but now the greater gift has been handed to them
0: thank you josh
2: um, also, this is kind of going back toward the beginning of Galatians 3, um,
3: but I think it's interesting to point out that um, prior to the Judaizing teachers showing up on the scene, the Galatians were Christians in the fullest sense of the word. Like they, they knew the truth, they were active in their Christianity, um, as far as we know, and they had all that they needed to serve God. And yet, the Judaizing teachers came and convinced them, or bewitched them, maybe, um, of these other teachings that they need to add in. Um, and I think that's why Paul starts out in chapter one by saying, you know, even if we are an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, won't be preached to you, let it be a curse. So um, anything that would contradict or add to the gospel that they already had that was causing them to be a functioning Christian wasn't necessary. And I think the greatest example of that is the fact that the things that people were using to bewitch them was God's word itself. It wasn't like they were just bringing in their own wisdom. Like, they they were taking something that was, you know, as powerful as it comes, you know, a direct commandment of God, and they were twisting the application enough to try to insert it into Christianity. So I think that's kind of the ultimate, uh, the, the furthest that you can take that of adding anything to Christianity. Because it wasn't like they were adding something from a different author. It was the same author, but it was a different application entirely. So, obviously, like, the, the bigger takeaway is... Anytime that people want to add something, um, no matter how big or how small, it can literally just be some some tenet of the Old Testament that they try to introduce into worship. The, the lesson that Galatians teaches is you can't do any of that. You have to go directly back to the first gospel that you were preached. And we have all that gospel in the New Testament.
0: Thank you. That's, that's really a great point to bring out. And I feel like that's such a big cause for... For Paul's frustration in this writing, I mean, he's, he's so livid at these people. You can just see how frustrated he is. Josh is right. They had been great Christians, and now they were being corrupted by, of all things, the old law, which seems to be a big, a big problem when you read through you know, what we had to face as Christians in the first century. But I can just see Paul getting so upset at something that should be so rudimentary. I mean, I feel like he goes through it and he explains it, like, with as much detail as he can. He's trying to spoon-feed it to these people. He's like, look at this verse. It means this. And then we go back to this. And as you see, there's a big there's a big plan right here. And You don't need to follow the old law anymore. And and that's sort of what it all boils down to. He's, he's upset, and he probably feels a little bit betrayed, too. And we need to make sure that we're keeping our eye out for that. We need to be trying to please God. Or... To seek truth, just like what we're doing tonight. Ha-ha. Any other comments? Yeah, sorry about that. That was pretty bad. All right, if there are not any more, I'd like to thank everyone for coming out tonight. Douglas, you got any truth-seeker announcements? Yeah, same old, same old. Um Sean, would you lead us in a closing prayer? Yes, sir.
1: Father, we come to you tonight giving you the thanks that we are able to all assemble tonight to come and study a portion of your word. Father, we ask that it would be beneficial to us as we walk. May all of our hearts be open to receiving your word, to trying our best each and every day to do it, even as the world becomes more sinful day by day, tries to beat us down little by little, more and more. Help us to always walk by faith. Help us to always walk with you. As we've studied let us not fall away to any other teachings, but only follow what is written in your word. nothing more and nothing less. Help us through our walk, guide us in the ways that we should go. Father, forgive us of our sins. Help us to be your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. you Sean. Don't
0: you want to stop this? Oops. Well, Now the whole thing about me sweating is in there. Oh, it's still there because it's still recording.
3: <laughs>